0: Welcome to TAB Storytellers. I'm Abby Pato Bay, and we are here to talk about TAB, which is an art education, pedagogy, movement, organization, methodology, belief structure uh, that focuses on three core tenets. The child is the artist, the classroom is the studio, and we explore what artists do. And
1: I'm here joined
0: by my co-host.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Ferrari. Thank you so much for joining us for another TAB Storytellers. This podcast was established to promote dialogue among art teachers who seek best practices in contemporary art education and to advocate for TAB pedagogy pedagogy and practice. This podcast, which we lovingly refer to as a TABcast is published once a month and is the place to share our TAB stories with one another. These stories can come from TAB educators, administrators, community members, researchers, and many more sources. From how we found TAB to implementation in the classroom to advocacy for your program, the dispelling myths about TAB practice, we cover it all. For more information, you can navigate after this TABcast to teachingforartisticbehavior.org, and there you'll find information, inspiration, and incredibly helpful items such as teacher-created resources and access to an online community of TAB educators called Mighty Networks. All right, Abby, take it away.
0: We are so excited to be joined on this TABcast edition with Seymour Simmons, who. I was introduced to uh, through Diane Jaquith a few years back um, in preparation, I think, for a workshop that you were giving at NAEA. Um, and so we have connected with Seymour a couple times. Jen got to meet him last year at NAEA and we felt like we, you, Seymour, would have a great um, amount of really thoughtful insight and um, interesting topics for us to think about as TAB educators, and we wanted to have you on the the TABcast. So welcome, and feel free to share a little bit about, I mean, you're not necessarily in the teaching of where you were, but where you are in your life now. Welcome.
2: Well, I'm in in Seattle, which is not where I usually am. I'm usually in South Carolina. Um, I was born and raised in Colorado, not too far from Wyoming. And uh, lived in Boston for about 20 years and then moved to South Carolina. And my career has been really a combination of teaching studio art and teaching art education and being a teacher and being an artist. So I have kind of a kind of a split personality, but they try sometimes they come together and make sense. And that's the that's what you hope on occasion. So I've retired. I retired in 2017 just before. Uh, everything happened, <laughs> so I was lucky. I never had to do this on online with a bunch of twelve-year-olds or twenty-four-year-olds. Um, so I avoided the, the the traumas and the challenges of of the COVID pandemic in my own way. But I spent a lot of that time writing a book about my experience as a teacher, as an artist, as a somebody who's trying to become a human being and that kind of stuff. And that really kept me concentrated. I just would go down to a basement like this, where I am, um, my son-in-law's basement. But it was like this a lot in a lot of books. And I would just bury myself for about four or five years writing uh, this book that was um, basically based on, I I went to graduate school in the philosophy of education. And um, I wrote about the, the philosophy and the history of drawing instruction, because I was a fanatic drawer, I still am, um, and I wanted to know how come I couldn't draw like the old masters and old mistresses, or whatever you call them, who were so much better than I was, you know, Katie Collowitz for example, and Leonardo and Rembrandt, why, why did I spend all my time drawing, growing up, drawing, and trying to be a good drawer, and I was still like miles behind these 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 heroic figures and i thought well you know of course there's talent and there's genius and there's right circumstances and great teachers and so on but um i had a bit of that i think a little bit anyway and uh, i'm still lagging lagging far behind and so um i used to i taught adult education for most of my early career and i taught gifted and talented um kind of in Little bits of that, middle school, elementary school, and so on. and uh, But most of my life has been spent teaching at the college level. And I've been teaching studio art and art education. And I've taught designers and illustrators and fine arts majors, undergraduate and graduates. And the thing I love the most is to teach whoever it is how to draw, what they see and what they imagine because that's been what I've devoted my life to. and it's great to have have colleagues and you know future colleagues and friends and and then people who become wonderful teachers and go out and spread the word or the line or whatever into classroom. So um, so I've been very lucky to have just a lifetime of of fantastic collaborations with with people like Abby and Jen and uh, Diane Jack with, for example. So, um, that's kind of the general background, I guess. I think I've covered this. Yeah,
0: it you know, I mean, I, I mean, summarizing a lifetime of work in a short amount of time—that's impressive because you have done a—you have done a lot. Um. So, so can you tell us our, your tab story, which you know, like how you've connected to tab or what you know about it, your experience related to it. Um. What? You, where are you at in relationship to tab?
2: Uh, I'm a I'm a great admirer of tab um I so that kind of this kind of gets back to the sort of my history of teaching and so on <laughs> but I I graduated from a doctoral program at Harvard School of Education and uh as never happens to anybody that I know of I immediately got a job in a place I really wanted to be, which meant I could stay in Boston, Cambridge out of Cambridge and was um you know just across the river from Boston. I got a job at Massachusetts College of Art and Design, which was is an iconic institution, the very first and the the only state supported art school in the United States. That means that it was a public school, public university or college, where you didn't have to pay an arm and a leg and you know the rest of your life to go and learn to be an artist, it was a wonderful institution. It was founded by uh, by someone whose whose job it was to teach regular classroom teachers to uh, to teach drawing. Walter Smith, and so it had this great you know history. And I I had the wonderful privilege of being able to teach both undergraduate and graduate students, and uh, one of them was Diane Jackwith, or Jakewith, however you pronounce it, who was one of the you know great students of my lifetime, and um, went on to teach me, and um, we met up sort of a few years after we I taught her, and she started telling me about this thing called TAB, and I said, that sounds like exactly the kind of education that I wish I had had growing up and that I wish I had been able to, or I wish I could impart on my future, my students, my these future teachers, and what I really aspired to do, but I didn't have a name for it. Um, but to go back a little bit further, when I went to teach at MassArt, um, the philosophy among several of my colleagues there <laughs> was to have an artist-teacher model, and that the teachers were gonna be our teachers were basically serious practicing artists. Maybe they're not selling and making their living at it, but they were very serious about their own work and uh, were formally trained as artists as well as you know, pursuing their own path. And th- the ideal for them as, as we saw it is to go into the classroom at whatever level and inspire young people to be artists in their own right. So it's sort of pre-tab-tab, I guess. Uh, and, you know, how do you do that? How do you get them to not just, you know, kind of identify themselves with some comic book artist and copy them for, you know, the next three or four decades? Or how do you help them to advance in their own visual adventures? You know, they're, they're what compels them to be a visual artist. And... Um, I had some experience about this kind of model in grad school, and I should talk about that because this is one of the conversations I had with Abby at the very beginning. I said, um, "Well, it sounds like you—you know—you're." She told me that she was writing this history of Tab, and I was thrilled to hear it because I really knew only the bits and pieces. Um, and incidentally, uh, John Crow was my successor, one step removed, at Mass Art, so he took over. After I left uh, in '93, and, and uh, so I knew about him, and I knew, you know, a lot of the other people in the program, but I'd only heard kind of vaguely about Tab from uh, from Diane, and um, and I interviewed her for this book. Um, I'll tell you the name of the book. It's called "The Value of Drawing Instruction in Visual Arts," in the visual arts and across curricula. Historical and philosophical arguments for drawing in the digital age. And it's published by Rutledge and is now cheaper because it's in paperback, but still expensive book. Um and so I had also I had also interviewed Diane for another book that I co-authored, which is a book on holistic art education. It was called The Heart of Art Education. And uh, and she told me about her teaching model, the philosophy that she um, inherited from John Crow and mass art and taken miles and miles beyond that. And so I knew what she was doing and I had some questions for her and I uh, interviewed her for this book and I asked her um, to tell me some things about TAB. So I gradually learned from her and then I would go to a lot of TAB um, presentations at the National Art Education Conferences. and it always inspired me and intrigued me and brought up questions about, you know, how would I do it if I did it? And um, so I'm, I'm going to double back a little bit further. So, um, so when I was in grad school, I was I was working, um, and some of you might be aware of uh, Harvard Project Zero. It's a research center on arts and cognition. It was started, I think, in the uh, in the 70s, by a philosopher named Nelson Goodman—Goodman, rather—and uh, basically had been directed by Howard Gardner and David Perkins uh, for many uh, decades afterwards, and is still in operation and going strong. Um, but I was fortunate to be invited to be involved with a project, a couple of projects, but the one that was most near and dear to my heart was one called Arts Propel. And Arch Propel was a project that began in the 1980s. And this is all about TAB. Don't worry, I'll get back to it. <laughs> uh, and uh, in the 1980s, if anybody knows anything about the history of art education, which I'm sure many of you do, that was the big, the big force during that time was discipline-based art education. Uh, it was funded by the Getty Foundation, which had oodles of dollars. And uh, the Getty was a art museum in in uh, Los Angeles district, um, and it was it was funded by the foundation because uh, in California, sadly, uh, there was very little art being taught in the schools. They didn't have money for designated art teachers, even though they had money for all kinds of other things, um, but they didn't have art designated art teachers. So um, the Getty was founded with this particular model to to help regular classroom teachers become successful at teaching genuine art lessons. Um, but they didn't think that just teaching the, their students to be an artist was enough. Nor did they think that art teachers were really qualified. Our regular classroom teachers were really qualified to teach. Um, Students to be artists if they hadn't been practitioners and studied themselves. But they did want them to teach about art in a genuine and meaningful way. So they created these, this curriculum called Discipline Based Art Education. And it really should be called Disciplines Based because it's got four different disciplines kind of tied up in this. So there's making art, the discipline of being an artist. There's the history of art, the discipline of being a historian of art. Um, there's the criticism of art, and that's the discipline of being an art critic. And then there's the aesthetics, which is the philosophy of art and how one judges the quality of a work of art in terms of certain criteria, philosophical criteria, you know? Like, does does this convey a truth? Does this express an emotion that is sincere and meaningful and relevant and so on? And how does, art, how does art do that? So these kids who are going from zero to hero in one five-year elementary school leap are going to learn a lot about a lot of aspects of art, but not necessarily about being being an artist or learning how to practice an art. So Arts Propel came along as sort of the antidote, <laughs> you could say, for the deficits of Discipline-based art education, um, and it focused on encouraging students to be artists, to do what artists do, and that entailed, as we understood it, it didn't it didn't negate looking at art. So it wasn't like kind of low and and you know, all about you know, un. un- Unobstructed self expression. You, know, you could say, oh my gosh, I've been looking at Rembrandt and now I can't help myself. I'm trying to draw like Rembrandt, which is a lot of my life. <laughs> but <clears throat> the idea was that we, you know, that arts, arts propel was broken down into it was a, uh, one of those words that actually means a whole bunch of words. And so propel was production. That's the first thing about being a student of art, is creating art. It was also about perception, which is studying art and being visually aware of the world and making sense of your visual experiences by translating them into images that you make. And that also helps you to become a better perceiver. And then there was another aspect of perception, which is studying the work of others. Because as much as we'd like to imagine ourselves as being um, born geniuses, we probably stole a lot as we were going along or borrowed it or unintentionally picked it up from brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and uncles and and aunts and museums and comic books and graphic novels and and all of these other kinds of visual displays television and so on and so so rather than just kind of letting this happen randomly or rather than just teaching people to paint like Monet one day and Seurat another day and and Katie Kalowitz another day, and Frida Kahlo maybe a little later on, you know, whatever. Uh, so we were saying, well, let's let's use the perception of art as a complement to and a support of making art. So rather than saying, okay, well, it's Monday and today we're going to do Picasso, and this tomorrow, and then we're going to be doing Magritte or whatever. Um, let's see what the students want to do and we we find teachers very usually very well prepared if they've got a good art background to say oh i see you're kind of worried about kind of you know making making these animals look really realistic and maybe you should be looking at so and so who did beautiful realistic animals for example and somebody else is there and they're trying to spill their guts about the latest trauma that happened to them Then you might say, well, you know, you might want to look at someone who's more expressionistic or more more involved in the kind of subject matter that compels you. And so the students would go and they would follow their different paths to find mentors in the world of art, as well as as teachers of their own. And, And then the third component was reflection. So it was really production, perception, and reflection. And the last was learning, which encompasses them all. And reflection has to do with um, sitting down and taking a serious look at yourself and what you're doing. And then you say, ask yourself questions like, why am I doing this? And what am I striving for? And where do I need to go to get help? And it's also a a dialogical process where you have a teacher or a friend or a, a family member who asks you those kind of questions. And you you know, you say, "Well, I really hadn't. I hadn't thought about that question. You know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm doing this because I'm, I'm depressed, repressed, impressed, expressed, or whatever. You know, and <laughs> where did this come from? And and all of a sudden, you become much more self-aware, and then gradually through self-awareness, you become more self-directed. So, all these components seem to be, in my view, uh, part of uh, teaching for artistic behavior." But we didn't have a label we didn't have the name and and it's a great one it's it's short and sweet and uh and you can say it without saying well it's all about perception and reflection and and production and learning and you know so propel was a little you know a little ahead of the game i think and inspired people like myself and that i brought to mass art that particular vision and uh and it eventually, I think, became the template for Studio Habits of Mind. So um, people like Lois Hetland were, was working at Project Zero, and then she teamed up with Diane Jackwith and several others, and, and Ellen Winner, who was really the, the visual arts coordinator for Arts Repel. um, Ellen Winner being Howard Gardner's wife and a, a developmental psychologist in her own right, and really a specialist in visual art. Um, And so she was the head of the visual arts component of Arts Propel, but there was also a music component, um, a dance component for some period of time, and a creative writing component. So I'm going to go back just a little bit further and tell you a little bit more about Propel, and then I'll go back to Tab. So we thought of ourselves as not particularly the antidote for DBAE, though we did see ourselves as kind of creating an alternative paradigm but the reason that this was established and was funded by the rockefeller foundation which didn't quite have as much money as the getty unfortunately but anyway it was funded by the rockefeller foundation because they wanted to help college admissions counselors to appreciate multiple intelligences to say oh okay well this person didn't write the best essay but look at the work that they're doing in their painting class or in their uh in their dance classes or they play in a jazz group or whatever and so we had to come up with that criteria rubrics um, that encompassed what people do when they're learning to be you know serious art students serious music students serious future uh, aspiring artists and musicians and writers and so on and that's where this propel model came up. It was really it was really an assessment driving a curriculum. We want people to understand what these, these young people are learning when they're using their multiple intelligences in ways that don't necessarily stand come up, you know, come up on SAT questions and have college admission counselors say, Oh, yeah, okay, this one, this one didn't do so good on their SATs. They're, grade point average is not what we expect, but look at how they they, thri- they thrive in the theater or in the dance program or whatever. So that's what we were all about. But at the same time, we had this alternative universe on the other side of the United States and California versus Cambridge <clears throat> that was really very well-funded. And so then we'd have these conversations back and forth between Rappel people and DBAE people. And I would have to give talks trying to explain why Propel was not just DBAE and sheep's clothing. That actually came up at one of my presentations. <laughs> oh, well, Propel is just DBAE and sheep's Whatever that means. Um. So one other little anecdote is that at some point, Elliot Eisner, who was the, really the, the, the one of the leaders of discipline-based art education. He was at Stanford, and he came to um, to Harvard to give some talks, and we invited him to give a talk to the to the gang at Arts Propel and uh, at Project Zero in general. And I gave a talk taking the Arts Propel angle, and Ellen Winner took the DBAE angle. So we had a, a room full of people who were all developmental psychologists all interested in the arts all interested in cognition who really didn't know what we were dealing with in terms of the two the these two paradigms and the reason i'm mentioning is this because i think it's relevant to what you're doing in tab and so ellen took the role of dbae she explained it very well all the four disciplines and so on and like four four components rather and then um And then I had to kind of ad lib after that because, you know, I had to be coherent and still follow what she just said. (laughs) And at that moment, I kind of had this inspiration. I said, well, DBAE is funded by a museum. Not just a museum, not just any museum, but a a vastly uh, important and well-endowed museum. Um, And Arts Propel is, well, it's working for, um, you know, a funder in a particular realm, it's really a, a center for developmental psychology. That's the way it started out. It started out studying art and developmental psychology and what artists do and how that relates to what children do and so on. And that's a very different point of view. You know, if you take the quote unquote end product, you know, what an artist does when they become renowned, um, that's one way to begin teaching about art. But the other way to begin teaching about art is what children do innately and in almost instantaneously instantaneously, when they emerge into uh, toddlerhood. You know, they stop being infants and then they pick up a pencil or a crayon or chalk or something indelible, you know. But they can't help it. That's just part of their genetic code. You know, I am a mark-making being. Uh, Let's see what I can do with this piece of graphite or over this mud puddle or in my case with this mashed potatoes you <laughs> know sticking my finger in the mashed potatoes making little designs and um and their way do you go from there and how do they learn to be artists and that's really kind of encapsulated very well in the studio habits of mind and you know they have studio habits of mind from the beginning now that goes back to um preschool and early childhood and so on um so that really kind of you know encapsulated for me the difference between our two philosophies. So we're looking at children becoming artists, rather than looking at children learning about artists. But you know, still including the component of studying the works of artists. And uh, and so then um, you know, being an artist myself and having you know having a long uh, difficult adolescence and early. Adulthood, I was very much into self expression at a certain part of my life. And I thought, this is what kids need when they are at the age that I was, but it's not necessarily what they need all their life, you know. Um, but they need to learn how to be, to find art as a vehicle for conveying whatever they need in particular parts of their life. And so that was, that kind of become my mission to kind of encapsulate that, you know, developmental process. Within the context of the history of art, and the history of aesthetics, and what artists do, and so on, and that's what the book is all about. So, if you want to get a long, long history, it's almost four hundred pages and almost two hundred illustrations. Um, but anyway, I'm trying to, you know, encapsulate that history, and also think about different motivations for what artists do. You know, and I've been through all those phases myself, so I think. So anyway, so so that brings me back to Tab, as I promised. (laughs) So, so being having been an erotic teenager and adult, I was very interested in Tab as a vehicle for self expression because I had a teacher at SML in junior high who really let me express myself. It was fantastic. And then after that, everybody else was trying to teach me. Maybe some technical skills, but mostly just do your own thing and figure it out for yourself, and so on. Um, which is another story. So, 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 Tab is in this book under the chapter of drawing as expression. It's a, it's an analogy. Drawing yeah. is drawing as seeing. Drawing is design. Drawing is expression. Drawing is experimentation. Drawing is a visual language. These are the five paradigms, and they're different models of teaching. And so uh, so that's where I put tab, and that's where I interviewed Diane, and I asked her a really tough question, which I'd asked her before, but in this context. I said, well, what do you do when children, just because of their nature or adolescence or whatever, begin to express scary subjects? You know, and I was thinking in particular of school shootings and so on, where you know, you're not just dealing with your own particular problems, but you're inflicting them on your classmates and teachers and so on. And, and yet, when I was a young child, I used to draw guns, and um, just about every kid that I know, including our son, who was perfectly innocent, one of the first things he did when he was three or four is he he bit into a, a slice of bread, and he... He uses it as a pistol. <laughs> and his mother freaked out because she's French and she's not aware of all this and craziness. So, anyway, so I was worried about this because, you know, if you're allowing kids to express themselves, you're opening the door for censorship and, you know, anxiety on the part of parents, teachers, administrators, the, the public, some of which is rightly so, others are just part of what you go through growing up. And, you know, people do, you know, different things at different stages. And, and, uh, it's part of growing and so on. So, anyway, she gave me a very good answer, of course. She says, well, you know, we keep things open, we don't make a big deal out of it. Uh, but if we're worried about something, we'll go see the school counselor and, you know, maybe talk to the home, homeroom teacher or whatever, it's of elementary. And, you know, there's these safeguards. And, and so there's this openness and this freedom to allow people to talk about what is on their mind, visually, as well as verbally. And, um, and I just thought that was a really wonderful model. Um, And so my assumption is that with tab, that it's not only about making, it's about learning from other artists, and other sources and other sources of inspiration, and so on. And it's about reflection, because you know, how do you process what you're learning for yourself. but I'm not I'm not sure of that because it was more formalized under uh, arts for propellant. It's also more formalized under uh, Studio Habits of mind. you know, where we have the reflection as as a very explicit component. So that's one question that I have to ask you all is how does that work and uh, what kind of problems do you have or what things you know how does how do you deal with contentious, subject matter or whatever and I'm still you know I'm still learning so I, I was really thrilled to have this chance to meet Abby and Jen and hang out with you all at the San Antonio conference and and then have this chance to ask questions of you <laughs>
1: oh <laughs>
2: that's oh not my enough. goodness <laughs> not no good.
1: I I know Abby unmuted herself did you want to share something Abby well I was just going to Say
0: that like this is this is an interesting concept. Like I, I spent twelve years working at um, a K six elementary school that had ninety five percent military uh, student population, um, and guns, and war yeah. were part of everyday life for these students. Their parents were being deployed. Um, I went to funerals for some of the students whose parents died in Afghanistan. Like, these were things that were, this was every day. And it became, like, this conversation it was, like, in this school, in this context, how can you, you know, draw dad as a soldier and not put, you know, hey, they were mainly Air Force kids, and not be putting what he carries to work as part of his uniform with him. Um, We also had, like, because we were. We were on federal ground, like the base had carved out a part of their grounds for the school to sit on. Not only did were we covered by the local police as part of our response team, we had a patrol of soldiers in our hallways, you know, twice a day with big guns as part of our everyday existence as a school. And so we just like we started having conversations about what is allowable and what is not. And um and so sometimes I think it's context based, but then I really, I really appreciate the work um, that Clyde Gough and Clark Freilich have done around the secret art of boys. I think they wrote a chapter in um, was it Engaged Learners book, Nan Hathaway and Diane Jakut's book.
1: It was one it of the kind be. of like the second it... tab book. Yeah. they have um, a um, well. Clyde has a uh, a blog as well that some is featured on so
0: yeah and so they wrote a really beautiful piece around this explanation about how it's important to have kids be able to express these things but also it didn't be a safe place for those conversations because if you're not a safe place for those conversations where are they, how are they going to be able to handle these things knowing that I don't know who I was talking to but whatever you do don't get fired um the context is important and there are schools and there are administrations and there are districts and places in the country where different topics are not acceptable and it might be guns Mm -hmm. in one place and it might be how your family's made up in another it is really it's interesting in this day and age and I would say it's more contentious now than it's ever been um but also all this is I don't know if I should go on record saying this, but I am definitely an ask for forgiveness versus a permission kind of person. And so mm-hmm. I will tend to continue until apprehended. And so <laughs> um, <laughs> that might not be great advice for someone, but that's how I've taught. Um, and I have, <laughs> there have been times I've been apprehended and been like, no, that's not gonna be where the direction this school has are happening. But it is also a place where I think it's important for a conversation to be had. That when kids do make art that is questionable, it opens a room and space for dialogue with administrators, with parents, with the community to say, what are our boundaries? What what is art about here? Where is this censorship? Is this um is this art that we make and take home? Is this art that we make and can display? Where are our boundaries on these things? And you know, and who gets involved and who has these say. So I mean, that's my that's my more than two cents worth.
2: And it's worth a lot. I, I I applaud you. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. I
1: had um one well, I have to say, as you were speaking, um, Seymour, I Abby knows everybody listen's knows. I wrote down so much stuff. so I'm gonna try to stay relevant to the question that you asked first. But I think I wanted to make a connection to this conversation about like controversial subjects. Um, I think that, and this is something you mentioned earlier when you were sharing, was that TAB offers something as a pedagogy for teachers and students that allows kids like the instruction to center around them. So it's really a, a pedagogy that considers kids' um, histories and who they are as a person, their worries, their, their happy, their their fear, their, their everything. And I think that there's a lot of um, teaching practices now um, that take into account that social-emotional piece of learning that mm-hmm. are really important to kids being able to engage in the classroom. Um, and actually, I'm doing some research right now with a friend of mine, Jill Hogan. And uh, one of the things that I'm focusing on is how TAB functions as a best practice, because it has these components of other general education, best practices, such as culturally responsive teaching and SEL, and um, all these other ideas that come from like, um, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on it now, the uh, STEAM, all of these different pedagogies that encompass all of best practices that have been researched in education and that's the one thing that i think is so special about tab is that when something like this comes up where there's a controversial topic whether it's um, violence or like abby was saying the makeup of like a person's family um, these conversations i think if we're focusing as educators around the language that art like the visual language of art And what are you conveying to others with your visual art language? And it does have like a place for starting conversations. And then also about, well, you know, what is it you want to say with your art? So it really opens up more like, I think, a valuable conversation than just it's not surface level at all, because with me and my kids, I don't have that experience like Abby does where, you know, it's part of like everyday life. But I did and I have had students respond to current events that have happened. And when I ask them about it and they tell me the story about their art, that really provides, like, context for me as their teacher. It, I think, provides them an outlet for whatever they're feeling. Um, But it does tell a much bigger story than just there's guns. And I think that's a really important thing that, like, we have to remember as like adults and educators that are, you know, seeing this, and this might be concerning for some, but it really can spark a conversation. Um, that was just one thought I had, right, your question just was, but I wanted to give you a chance to, um, to share more, and then I had more things to ask you later. <laughs>
2: so. it, that's great. Um, yeah, well, one of the things that this brings to mind is a couple of experiences I've had um, as a you know as a teacher, uh, as an art education teacher, uh, after I left uh, mass Art, I moved to South Carolina and I was teaching at a, a state university, Winthrop University, which is a uh, one of the one of those uh, it was a women's college where they're mostly preparing women to be teachers. and it was sort of the sister school with Clemson, which was the men's college where the men were becoming engineers and so on and so. Um anyway, Winthrop as as a woman's college kind of primarily, uh had a very strong art and music and dance and theater program because it was part of the culture that you know these these young women when they were coming, you know, into you know careers and teaching were all you know they came from usually um well-educated homes where they would have that kind of exposure It was founded in the 1880s. And uh, and so it had this really wonderful program. And, and, uh, and so I got to work with these fantastic students. And there, there was just this great culture in South Carolina where they had established, in, co- in contrast to a lot of the problems with education in the state, the arts were thriving. And they had art teachers and music teachers and theater and dance teachers state mandated for every elementary school. You didn't get that in New York. You didn't get that in Boston. You didn't get that in Chicago. You don't get that in L.A. But because they had some very far-sighted governors and educators and really a strong arts community, they had just uh, fabulous artists, teachers in the schools. And uh, I was very fortunate because our kids got to go to school in those schools, and they even had a governor's school. Were gifted and talented high school students. Our daughter got to go and spend two years in a residency program funded by the state, which is kind of hard to imagine. You know, it was uh, theater, dance, music, creative writing for the human, arts and humanities. But anyway, so I had these great teachers, and one of them, when I came and I didn't know anybody really, I mean, I just got hired and here I was. And I went over to this in middle school, incidentally, is my favorite level for teaching myself next to college and i love that and um, i always look for good middle school teachers and um i would go to these art shows and i would see what the, the kids were doing and i one one particular school really caught my attention because there was all this really sophisticated jewelry that was coming out of these schools and they were selling it you know this one school in i think it was york you know it's a small town not not small town but a very small city, maybe 10,000 or something like that, just up the road. Big, beautiful plantation kind of houses and everything, and lots of poverty. And these kids were in this public school and they were doing all this really cool metal smithing and leather working and all kinds of incredible crafts. So I was excited to go and supervise one of my students at that uh, middle school. And I found out that it was set up in what the teacher called an atelier arrangement that means that it's like you know it's like stations you know in elementary school this is the station for leather working this is the station for wood burning this is the station for metal working this is the station for ceramics or whatever and the way it was set up is that the older students would get trained and so when the younger students come in the older students they'd say well what do you want to do well i want to do metal i want to do silversmithing smithing, or I want to do pottery, or whatever. It's like, okay, but you go over in that corner and you work with Sally or Ned or Joe or Ed or whatever, and they'll show you the ropes and they'll show you where they get the stuff. And you go, and then we'll talk about your work, you know, later on, you know. So the teacher was basically just, you know, it's like a three ring circus. She was orchestrating all these different craft centers, but you know, these kids became really autonomous from the beginning through, you know, from fifth to Sixth to ninth grade, eighth grade, or whatever it was, you know, middle school years, and then they would go to high school, and the high schools had these fabulous uh, AP programs, and you know, they're always getting, you know, fours and threes and fours and fives, or if they have fives, and you know, it's just, just you know, from elementary, every every school had an elementary art teacher, they were really good teachers, then they go to middle school, they'd have these fantastic middle school experiences, and they were at high school, they were doing stuff that I couldn't do when I was in college, you know? Really amazing stuff. And this is South Carolina, this is not LA, you know? And uh, anyway, so that was one experience. But then we had another experience that was quite different. Um, Shortly after I arrived, um, you know, are you familiar with the work of Robert Coles, C-O-L-E-S? Anybody? No, no. Well, he was a a psychiatrist. Harvard, Harvard, he taught psychiatry in Harvard Medical School. Um, And he wrote a bunch of books um, called Children in Crisis. It's like five volumes of Children in Crisis around the world. And they won Pulitzer Prize in a Pulitzer Prize. So he was like a really notable, psychologically- tuned in person. And what he would do is he would go, he would make the rounds. This was days days when doctors did house calls. And uh, he studied with um, a a doctor who was also a famous poet, and I forget his name for a minute, but this is what the the doctor that Robert Coles apprenticed with, and I'll remember his name shortly after this conversation. But, you know, like a totally famous world-class American poet was also a doctor. And this doctor would make house calls and he would sit down with these children and he'd take out a pencil and piece of paper and he and the kids would draw and they talked talk to the kids. And as they drew, he kind of helped them to express what they were feeling, you know, physical or emotional or whatever. And, uh, and Robert Coles picked up that strategy and he went around the world working with children in the most horrific situations the kind of stuff that's happening all over the world now and they would draw and they would talk about their drawings and then he wrote some books uh, with illustrations and one of them is a, a book specifically about his collected work called their eyes meeting the world it's it's got you know the collections of the drawings and his strategy and his dialogue and Uh, Very interesting kind of stuff. So anyway, so Robert Coles was connected with a uh, Center for Documentary Studies at at, um, Duke University, which was not that far from uh, Rock Hill. It's about three hours up the road. And he had an exhibition of his collected children's art from all over the world. And he gave a talk about it. And um, the the, uh, head of the gallery at Winthrop went to that talk. And he arranged to have the work come to Winthrop. And he arranged also for Robert Coles to come and give a talk, which didn't work quite quite work out. But anyway, so we had an exhibition of the art from children in crisis all over the world. Amazing stuff. You know, kids not necessarily doing crisis stuff, but talking about their lives. You know, so they're beautiful drawings of mosques from kids in countries where they're not supposed to draw realistic things. You know, and... um. And it's all in this book. This uh, their eyes meeting the world, and uh, so anyway, to to kind of collaborate or to complement the exhibition of art around the world, um, me and my art education students, and uh, in conjunction with the the wife of the gallery director, who also happened to be the elementary art teacher for our kids, who had also been trained as an art therapist. So we worked in collaboration to have an exhibition of art from York County, our region, on the on two questions, two drawings that were put side by side. One is I feel happy when, and the other is I feel sad when. And the teachers would hand them these two sheets in you know, a sheet of double paper with one on one side. And they were free to do whatever they want and to write about it on the bottom. And um, most of the teachers had never done anything like this in their lives. Uh, they are kind of influenced by DBAE, which had sort of become a model for the South Carolina standards uh, frameworks and so on. And so they're more into let's you know today it's Syrah, let's do pointillism, that kind of stuff. So they weren't really kind of tuned in with their the inner lives of these children. But when they saw this show, a lot of them were aghast because all the things came up. You know, there was gun violence. There was domestic violence there was transgender transvestite stuff coming for these kids them stuff that no one was teaching them they just were curious about or afraid of or excited or like them or whatever made them happy you know and all kinds of other wonderful things you know like one of my favorite was i'm happy when i have a good monkey or i'm happy when i see my pig or you know uh, I'm sad when kids are mean to me, you know, and beautiful expressive renderings in color and black and white or whatever. And there's also some really interesting developmental stuff, um, you know, where you see kids that were, you know, in fourth grade, they were drawing like they were four years old and vice versa. You know, you can really see the challenges there. And there's also one series that were done that was actually done at the elementary school where my children went. And it was, a, it was, Four or five kids did drawings of a head over here, an arm over there, a leg over there, a tummy over here. And, and they would write these notes, you know, like, I feel sad when my cousin died it. And the story was that one of the kids in the neighborhood had been run over by a car and literally torn limb from limb. So that was on these kids' minds. But it wouldn't have come out if they hadn't had an art class or an art lesson you know and so the teachers were like wow uh now how do we deal with this and very coincidentally that year the national the south carolina art education association had a guest speaker who was an art therapist and uh, he talked about how to deal with these contentious and frightening topics and um I wrote about him. He wrote an article for the uh, uh, Art Education Journal called The The Art of Disturbation. And how do you deal with disturbing topics? And he had a, he had a method that he would, um, you know, he, he let kids do whatever they want, but they didn't necessarily end up in the hallway for Parents' Day. So there'd be like a section in the room where kids could do things that might disturb other kids. Where, you know, if they just wanted to do something for themselves, and so anyway, I wrote about that in my book. But that article is is quite quite compelling, and it's basically a system to allow these things to happen without, you know, getting undue attention or just you know, disturbing the the powers that be or the parents or whatever. So anyway, this is all happening around the same time, and those events that you know that incredible craft program. You know, craft with a capital C, um, and then um, this opportunity to see art from around the world and art from around the block um, together. You know, and and to be working with wonderful teachers who appreciated what was was being said and and shown and so on. And um, those are kind of things that affected me as a teacher. Like, how do I help my art education students become teachers who can open the doors for these kinds of things and handle them in appropriate, way, appropriate ways and so on? And, and also that were artists themselves, so they knew why kids were doing that, doing these things or why they needed to do whatever. So it's really a wonderful um, way of getting started in South Carolina, having these events. So... Anyway, so that's all still background for TAB because that's, you know, what TAB, I think, uh, exemplifies. And I I love what both of you said to, um, to these points.
1: Well, you know, um, while you were talking just now, I often wonder what education would be like in general if during, like, teacher preparation, we had basic training and counseling or, like, how to deal with, Trauma, like trauma informed practice, because I think that it is so like surface level that if we had more of that, then we would be so much better at what we we can do for kids. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I often wonder what would like, how would I be different? How would I better be able to serve my student population if I had more like training in this, more background in it? Because I think I could really do quite a bit more for my kids you know so that's something that is on me and I think I want to improve on but just in general I wonder and you know it's funny because um, you you talk a lot about the artist teacher and this is something that I struggle with a lot Um, and I was wondering if maybe you wanted to share any more about that because I think when well, for me, I'll talk from my from my experience. When I went into art, I went into it at first because I loved to make things, and I got a lot of concern from my family, uh, mainly my parents, who were concerned about what I would be able to do with that once I got out of college. Um, and so, one of the reasons I became a teacher, besides my love of sharing it with other people, was because it was a little bit of um, like. It was comforting to know that there would be a position or something that I could do with what I learned in school. But I feel like a lot of us have to choose either teaching or artist, And there are not a lot of teachers that can be both. And so I was wondering, because you almost, I almost forget that I can make art because all of my time goes to either planning or um, researching or talking about the, the teaching of art. So I didn't know if you wanted to add anything else to that conversation because I know for me it's very challenging. I don't know if you have any advice.
2: Boy, yeah, that's a tough one because you know you you know people people like me who've been putting people like you through undergraduate or graduate programs, <laughs> we can't BS it. You know, we can't say, "Oh, you're going to go out there and just do your thing and you know paint in the classroom and all the kids will just love you and do their own work." You know because you have to be really there for them as a as a teacher and 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 their needs are you know just like being a parent. you know you have to be that's their main job. Um, but um, I, I did see a few a few models that worked fairly effectively, I think, for individuals is one that um, when I was in Massachusetts in MassArt, there was a of a, a special needs classroom. special needs school that was actually state funded and it had every you know all the extremes uh, quadriplegic kids you know kids with autism and you know the whole gamut and the art teacher there was quite extraordinary and i'm not going to be able to remember him either but he always had a piece on the wall he always had a paint you know painting on an easel and he would go over and work on it occasionally and the kids would always come back and they'd say hey what you doing mr whatever his name was uh, can I see it? And he talked about his, you know, I'm having trouble with this. Maybe he'd get feedback from them. But he wanted that, you know, that uh, part of himself to to continue to grow. And also as a way of kind of, you know, encouraging the, you know, the kids around him to, you know, that he takes it seriously and they take it seriously. And I, I was not able to do that myself. You know, I was so busy when I was teaching like middle school. I'm just keeping on top of these kids and keeping them working and not tearing each other's hair out, and you know, that was all I could handle, but um, that worked for him, and that was one of one example. And then I think, um, I think graduate school is a great thing for teachers if you get to a, a program like like Art, had a, 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 an, M, an MA, and Winthrop did both MA and a MA art education. With a studio track and a and a uh, research track, that was one of the things that both those schools had, and I was involved in that. And the studio track, that's that gave the teachers a, an excuse to, you know, take student you know studio class at the at the graduate level and focus on something that they really cared about. And it was sort of like a sabbatical in a way. I mean, it was it took a tremendous amount of work and took years and years and you know, but. They really, you know, they really grew and they took that as a moment of when they could do that. But I mean, otherwise I know what a challenge is. And, you know, if you've got a family, then you've got, you know, added responsibility. So for me, what I do is I keep a sketchbook and I just keep it with me all the time. And anytime I got a few minutes, I'll just scribble something. It always looks horrific, you know, and embarrassing. And I don't want to show it people. But when I look back at it, I say, oh yeah, I was there and this is what was happening and this is how I felt and I might write notes and stuff. And that was always, for me, that was one of the cornerstones of when I was teaching. I always required the students that they had their own sketchbook. I always went through the through the sketchbooks and I never like graded graded it for content and I never would look at anything they didn't want to show me, you know. So I'd say, take a paper clip and put it over or, you know, bulldog clip, if it's a lot, you know, and put it over the stuff you don't want me to see. And I'm not going to look at it because I don't want to see what they don't want me to see. Uh, But, you know, from, 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 uh, well, from middle school, that was one of the things that we had for Arts Propel. And these kids were required to have a sketchbook that included their reflection, their, you know, they cut out, hopefully not original artwork, but Cut out pictures or postcards of art that like inspired them, and put put it down on there. And they'd write a little message. And the teachers were kind of encouraged to do their own. I don't know how many they did did do that, but that was one of the things that I did. From you know, in all my art education classes, everybody kept a sketchbook, and many of them continued to do that. And it's 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 a, like a precious thing that it doesn't matter if it gets all beat up and ruined, you know, it's like precious to you, but it doesn't necessarily going to be, it's going to be on display. And, uh, we used to have some of those, um, you know, in-service teachers coming back for courses and we would do things like that. And, and, um, you know, sometimes they do travel things where they'd go and they keep a sketchbook journal. So I think those are three things that come to my mind, but, um, you know, the reality is this teaching is tough and it's not getting any easier, I'm sure, since post-COVID. But on the other hand, if you just got a little, little book that you can have next to your desk and vent, you know, <laughs> vent a little bit. I don't know. Oh, the other yeah. thing I used to do is I would draw incessantly at faculty meetings. Yes. I don't know if you can get away with that, but. That was that was my regular practice. I forgot about that.
0: (laughs) I like to tell first year teachers that they should just invest in like one really nice sketchbook and take it to every staff meeting over the course of their career because some of your best art happens in the margins of really long staff development meetings.
2: Yeah. There you go. (laughs) I knew we were kind of like related here. Meeting of like minds or something. Yeah, that's great. And then Absolutely. you have a lifetime, a lifetime of looking back and and they, and you know the other thing about it is that you never feel like a meeting is a waste of time, even if it might actually be, because you, at least you got to draw a little bit, you know. Well,
1: it might be the only time that you actually have to sit in a space, you know, and like your focus is literally just that one thing there. <laughs> you don't have to think about any of the other things.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going back through my. You know, I just turned seventy five, and I'm going back and looking through. You know, really, probably, probably 60, 60 years of of sketchbooks, and I see all kinds of little me's. You know, at different stages of my life, and you know, see myself struggling to try to learn things and and writing about you know despairingly or exultantly or whatever. It's very wonderful you know, to be able to look back and watch yourself grow and realize that no matter how bad you are now, you were a lot worse back then. You know, so.
0: I, I think there's something precious about those because I mean, maybe maybe that's what I, I not that I am fond, overly fond of um, dead white European artists. They have their place in history and time that we've given them a lot of space in our educational trajectories, but I think that there is something that Picasso had, and several kind of impressionists did. That that when you learn something and you you hit the peak of your your understanding of things, and you could masterfully. And I think sometimes we think masterfully means um, very well rendered or photorealistic rendered. But but once you get to that point of being able to see the world in that way and render it the way you see it, and then unlearn it, Mm -hmm. if you can unlearn what you've learned or overcome your instinct of things you've learned, I think that's what makes some artists really feel extra amazing because you know they can do it, but then they choose not to live in that space of that hyper-realistic ability that they own um, because it's not serving the needs of their artistic conversation anymore. And I think that that's something that we lose a little bit in this drive to have, you know, like we want to learn how to do things. And we want to master it and we want it to be. And then at some point there's a whole group of people who have mastered things and then tried to go backwards. And so I think that there's something precious about art of children. And I think of like of past selves is that you can't really go back to who those people were. I, my children are not going to make me really cute little, you know, stick figure people with, with their arms coming right out of their head. Like that's a developmental stage that's just gone. And so if I don't have those, you know like that's, you know, you don't get to be that person again. And so I, I like the record of who we were in those past durations of the artwork that we've made. And I think that's what I really love about children's artwork, is it is who they are at that moment. And then once they grow just a little bit more, they're never that person again.
2: Yeah, it's magical.
0: Yeah, all of my thoughts. We have overly long kept you and we had more questions for this podcast, but we have meandered our way through several topics that were very meaningful and I think insightful. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us before we wrap up?
2: I think development, child development in art is so incredibly important. You brought it up. It's such a, it, you know, the, the part of this research that I did, you know, I was looking at how artists got to be artists but I was finding out that up until really recently, like in my lifetime, just about everybody learned how to draw. This goes back to the, you know, beyond the Renaissance, before the Renaissance. People learned how to draw because there was no other way to record visual impressions before the, the camera, right? So you had to put it down on a piece of paper and then you could show it to somebody and explain it to them. And up until, you know, um, really the, mid 20th century when photography became so accessible they cut all that stuff out and you think about what our world would be like if everyone learned how to see you know if they learned how to see and communicate visually and so I'm going to bring up one thing I think you know when little kids are starting out and they're trying to draw realistically and some say, no, no, don't worry about that. Why don't you still be a kid? You know, just don't worry about trying to make copy. There's some really good research about second graders wanting to draw realistically, learning how to do it. And then they can do it. And then they don't have to. They can regress anytime they want or they can advance, you know. So teaching kids when they're re- developmentally receptive and um and giving them the skills so that they don't feel incompetent. I mean, that's that's a huge deal. I mean, they're not even learning how to write anymore. And this is you know, the hand is so fundamentally important to the brain that you can't imagine them functioning without one another. But where do they learn manual skills? Jen talked about craft and making things. Where do they learn that anymore? They're so busy taking standardized tests and, and take home worksheets and things like that. So I think teaching development is critical and it's A much more it's much more than just art jen mentioned steam and so on drawing is part of steam it always has been so you could be teaching science and they would learn how to draw that's how kids used to learn to do science they'd go out with their little pad and paper and they'd draw the tadpoles and the ferns and things like that and they learn how to draw and it was not a big deal it wasn't like torture and then they didn't be neurotic you know they could just
0: we wouldn't have art education in the US if it wasn't for the need for people to draw. I mean, literally drawing classes were the first mandated art education class in Massachusetts. I mean, this really drawing is the foundation of art education, at least in the US.
2: Oh, and, and it's Europe, critical. And Europe, throughout Europe, it's the same thing. They 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 inherited that from the UK who got it from France. And it was really there to get people to learn to appreciate beauty to learn how to make things that are well-crafted, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, so much there. Uh, it's been a pleasure, a joy, really, to talk to you both.
1: Maybe we'll have to have Indeed. a part two at some point, because there's still so much more that I feel like we could chat about. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Um, thank you. I just wanted... I wanted to mention before we um, said goodbye tonight that just in case if anyone was curious about finding out more about TAB, you can go to teachingforartisticbehavior.org. And also, if you were, when you were there, there's a little blue button up in the corner that says join our community and um, that will lead you to Mighty Networks. And it's free, it's an online community of TAB educators who talk about all kinds of things, including things we've talked about tonight, so, um, feel free to navigate there. Check that out. Um, Abby, is there anything else we wanted to add? We
0: We're, we're gonna. We're gonna make sure that we link in um, how to find and buy Seymour's book, um, because mm-hmm. it is out definite. It's something that I think art educators should have in their collection of um, tools. But also, knowing the history of how we get our profic- profession to where we are is important too. We become as future art educators, our past informs our future. Um, And I think that, uh, I think this has been a great conversation and we would love to have you back. So
2: thank you so much for being here. Anytime, thank you.
0: I've never had a conversation Seymour ever where I didn't feel like I've learned a lot and become a better art educator just because of all of the things that you um, know and are connected with in relationship to how art education and history works, but also um, and the, your insightfulness into the art practice. And so thank you for that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I would like to say the same to both of you. I've really enjoyed our conversations and getting to know you. So thanks. I will look forward to seeing you in uh, Minneapolis.
1: I will be there. Yes,
2: Either I too. will be there
1: as well. And hopefully so. many of our listeners will be there too. So we'll have to make sure we connect with them. Yes, oh, yeah.
0: NAEA in Minneapolis this year. I think it ends on my birthday, so oh, we're right around there in April. So, All right, we'll have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for being on with us. Thank you. Thank, Bye-bye. thank you. Thank you, Jen.